This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Montrose is a uniquely welcoming place for veterans. The Western Slope community has Melanie Klein to thank for that. Five years ago, Klein welcomed home, uh, founded Welcome Home Montrose. Her organization offers veterans a wide range of services, from counseling to outdoor adventures. Last month, Klein retired, but Welcome Home Montrose will continue, and it may expand. Klein joins us now via phone. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, Nathan. So there is a phrase that has become well-known among veterans who have benefited from your Welcome Home Montrose program, get off the couch. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, it refers to how this whole program started. Um, One Sunday morning in late 2011, I was sitting on my couch having a cup of coffee and watching my favorite new show on television, and a segment came on about Team River Runner, which is a group of uh, kayak instructors who are teaching wounded vets from the Walter Reed area how to kayak on uh, the Potomac River. And I, it was, I was so moved to see these individuals learning how to kayak, and particularly one, uh, Todd Love, who was a triple amputee, and he was getting in the kayak. His father was assisting him, and he said that he felt free and transformed in that kayak. And his instructor was also an injured vet with traumatic brain injury, and he said that that whole um, experience teaching Todd and others how to be in a kayak gave him his life back. And I sat there so moved to learn that this alternative therapy was uh, helping our vets coming home, and I just looked at their young, young faces, and I thought to myself, wow, we have a river. We have all kinds of adventure in every direction here in Montrose. Um, I wonder if they could independently go and do these things. Um, would that make that life better? Would it make them happier? Would they realize their own American dream if they just lived here? So I jumped off the couch, and the very next day I started making appointments and meetings with people of influence in my community to see if Montrose would embrace becoming a home for uh, injured veterans. And you didn't have any veterans in your family. You had no connection to any no. veterans group, right? No, uh, no, I didn't. I, I have sons, and perhaps the the fact that I have sons who might have gone to war and have might have come home that way, um, maybe that influenced... I don't really know. I so, was so it truly was your... And I got up off the couch. It was your heart well, watching this this program on the East Coast of the United States. It really was, Nathan. It really was. And, and loving Colorado and right. seeing the possibilities of of uh, others loving it here in Western Colorado. So in a matter of months, you start this program, Welcome Home Montrose. How did you do that in such a short amount of time? Well, the key thing is community. You know, it was, uh, like I said, I started talking to people. It started with people of influence. Then it ended up with uh, addressing church groups and service organizations and other nonprofit organizations and schools and everyone just trying to um, float the program and see if, all these different individuals and organizations would kind of add a line to their mission statements, helping to make Montrose a no-barriers community, which means that no matter what your physical ability is, you could live here. Um, And, of course, I was specifically focused on our injured veterans coming home since 9-11, but it's so more all-embracing. And so every time I made a a, um, presentation, I always brought 
a bulletin board and some index cards and said at the end, if you're interested in doing this and you're passionate about it, how can you help? And then pretty soon I had stacks and stacks and stacks of index cards, everything from I can mow someone's lawn to I can help somebody make a business plan. Um, I have broad shoulders and can can comfort someone. I mean, it was just this huge community outpouring, and I think I realized right then that the uh, kind of like the World War II war effort where they, all the average civilians kind of rallied around our, our uh, veterans and our like service Like victory members. gardens and things like that and, and coming in yeah, rationing. Yeah, that kind of way that that spirit was still alive. Now, but were, um, were veterans... There, hadn't been, there wasn't a way to do it. There wasn't any portal. There was no way of giving until we opened up this idea, and then the outpouring was unbelievable. But weren't veterans skeptical when you approached them? I mean, what do you know I mean, about this? It seems interesting. What did they think? <laughs> well, at first they were like, is this woman just one more organization <laughs> trying to form an organization that's going to exploit us some mm. sort of way for their own good or... Or what? Yeah, there was, some, but there were so many more that just came on board to help. Especially, I have to say, especially Vietnam veterans who know what it was like when they came home from war, and they didn't want to see that happen ever again to um, our new guys that are fighting the war on terror. And, and you did this all without government funding, is that correct? Yeah, without any funding at all. It, it really isn't about money and dollars. It's really about the community, because everything you need will come from your community if you give them a chance and tell them what you need. It's right there. So veterans have come from around the country to participate in Welcome Home Montrose programs, and you have more than a 1,000 local veterans involved. Can you give us one example, maybe, of a veteran whose life has been changed because of this program? Oh, my gosh, just one? There's so many good stories. I I wouldn't even really know where to start. Um how about John Bish? Okay. John Bish, um, Vietnam veteran who was passing through Montrose, happened to hear about the Warrior Resource Center, which is our physical location on Main Street here, and um, walked in, saw what we were doing, began crying, actually, and moved to Montrose to help. And now he's at the Warrior Resource Center. Every day he's in charge of our suicide prevention program. Um, he's there to do whatever, you know, you should see a Thursday morning at the Warrior Resource Center, I just got to say. Um, Thursday morning is when veterans are welcome to come for coffee, and this coffee is underwritten by various businesses, whoever wants to help, you know, does. And it's also, there's donations of coffee and donuts and grandma's bake cinnamon rolls. It just goes on and on. Um, we're, it started out of about half a dozen people came for coffee, and now every week there's around 90 veterans who gather together every week and support each other. And I think that's better than any therapy group, although we do have therapy groups too. But this coffee is very remarkable, and John's there every day to help welcome newcomers. Just getting a cup of coffee and talking with fellow veterans. Yeah, because they need, you know, they especially, again, the Vietnam veterans, they tend to isolate and it's really important now that they are retiring um, from their active lives. You know, you hear that the veterans' suicide rate is 22 veterans a day. And what you don't hear is that 60 to 70 percent of that is Vietnam veterans. 
We're talking by phone with Melanie Klein in Montrose. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In 2011, Klein decided to turn this town of 20,000 into what she hoped would be one of the most welcoming communities in the country for veterans. Klein created an organization that has become a model for other communities, uh, and Klein has recently retired. So, Melanie, you put Montrose on the national radar with veterans. Your staff and volunteers say you did that by working 70 to 80 hours per week. They even call you a force of nature. What do you think is going to happen when Welcome Home Montrose uh, uh, finds itself without you? Oh, I was never meant to run this, Nathan. I was only meant to start it. There are so many competent people, way more competent than I ever would be to maintain this organization. I was able to spark it. Emily Smith, who is our executive director, has been with me since the very beginning, and she's the real mom of this program. She's a military spouse, a young mom, and she knows exactly what um, our veterans and their families need in a community, and she's got it under control. And with with our board of directors, you know, I'm sure my energy will be missed because it's of a different nature, but um, it's going to survive and flow. It's going to be great. And there are 200 active volunteers, more than 15, uh, 1,100 veterans are registered at the center. Uh, you have programs uh, like uh, Tai Chi classes, uh, counseling, helping with rent, filling out forms. Now, do you want to spread this to other communities around Colorado and the country? Is that your ultimate goal? Well, my ultimate goal is, of course, to have as many veterans feel comfortable in their communities as possible. It's born of the idea that the military create successful warfighters and service members, but communities create successful civilians and community members. And so, yes, it's very important to understand that we can't wait for the government to bring the individuals that have been trained for war into our towns and communities without the assistance of our towns and communities. And that's our piece of the war effort. So um, if you give community members an opportunity to do that, they will embrace it and they will do it very well. And I'm so proud of everything we've accomplished here, and I'd love to see it spread. Now, Welcome Home Montrose is so much a part of you, and you're so much a part of it. Isn't there a concern from you that if it goes to another community, it won't be what you created? It may be a money-making endeavor or something that doesn't have veterans' best interests at heart. Is there a way to prevent that? Well, we would like to have charter communities and affiliate program, which we've put together step by step, and I think that it's really important that other communities understand where we went wrong, where we went right in this formula that we've created to be successful. Um, There have been groups who have tried to take pieces of what we've done um, and haven't been successful because they forget to involve the community. They think that it's all about fundraising and that they're going to create services that are already provided in their community. Um, The important thing is to remember that it, It really is a way for grandma or a business organization or a service organization to come in and individually help veterans in their own community and support the troops locally. And uh, it's a concept that they have to understand. So there there are things that people are already doing in their businesses, in their homes, that they can actually put to use in the veteran community as well. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying that in every community there is hunger among our veteran population, there's homelessness, all those different kinds of things that people may not be aware 
uh, with a spotlight on veterans about it. They look at the average population and the hunger piece, for example, we have soup kitchens and, and um, pantries, food pantries here in Montrose that hadn't really focused on veterans specifically. And veterans are a different group. They're, they're proud. They're not looking for a handout. They're still looking to serve. So to walk into an organization or a place and say, I need help, is not natural for a veteran. Hmm. However, there's plenty of military families that need help out there. And if the um, organizations are aware of that and can help veterans in a different way, it serves everyone all around. So I want to get back to you for a second. What is next for Melanie Klein? You were an accomplished silversmith, (laughs) a businesswoman, and a grandmother. Before you, you got off the couch. Will you go back to those things, or are you going to stay involved with veterans, even though you've retired? Well, I've made so many friends and so many connections through this organization that I didn't know that I'm sure I won't be 100% away from it. But it's time for me to go back to my garden. It's time for me to get back to the bench. I am a jeweler. We have a family business here um, on Main Street, and I am a grandmother, and I'm also ready to retire. So I'm hoping to slow down and really just enjoy life and look around and be amazed at the Welcome Home Montrose program and be proud of my community, but more from a distance. And so how many veterans have you brought into Montrose? How many veterans have come in and, and you know personally that you may see around the, the city as you, as you go around uh, being retired? Oh, my gosh, Nathan. I don't know. You know, I don't have a count for it. We've had different programs that have brought veterans from all over the country, particularly as we endeavor to become a no-barriers. That's what we're calling a no-barriers environment. We need to have disabled individuals come and test out um, our, our recreation, our infrastructure, what it's like to have a job here, what it's like to live here, um, so that we can make the changes, they need to make us aware and be consultants when they come so that we know the changes that we need to work on and, and inform our work plan by those various individuals and their different needs. So um, I, I couldn't even count. We've had, we've had Mission No Barriers adventures where people have come in to test the recreation, but then we had the Dream Job program where individuals came and lived here for six months. Um, within the community with mentors who might be um, someone who could lead them toward a job so or numerous, a career that they think they want. Numerous, yeah. numerous, so, numerous veterans. Numerous, numerous. Melanie, <laughs> fabulous. thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about it, Nathan, and thanks for your time. Melanie Klein is the founder of Welcome Home Montrose. You can learn more about the veterans group she founded at CPRnews.org. Still ahead, wolves are making a comeback to the north and to the south of Colorado. Could they soon be moving here? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Wolves are beasts of waste and desolation. If you believe the words of Teddy Roosevelt, his feelings summed up how many Western settlers felt at the turn of the century when the animals were hunted nearly to extinction. Then, about 100 years later, the federal government decided to try and bring them back. There have been roadblocks, including just this January, when Colorado's wildlife commissioners voted to oppose any effort to introduce wolves to the state. Boise State University environmental policy professor John Freemuth has watched as wolves were listed as endangered, as they are here still, and as they recovered, as they have elsewhere, including in his state, Idaho. Welcome. Great to be with you. 
There are two types of wolves in the West. Gray wolves, which were introduced in several states north of Colorado starting in the 1990s, including Idaho, and Mexican wolves, uh, introduced south of Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. It's been controversial, particularly to those in livestock industries. But let's go back to the 1800s uh, when Teddy Roosevelt said those words. Why were wolves seen as a threat? Well, you you just have to look at the context of, of our country back then. You know, we're, we're removing Native Americans. We never want to forget that. We're settling the West, and we, we bring whatever set of values we have with us. And at that particular time, as your quote from, you know, noted conservationist Teddy Roosevelt, ironically, tells us, we didn't like wolves back then. And so it was perfectly normal and accepted to get rid of them. That was, that was just how we looked at things back then. Of course, you, you remember the uh, the Brothers Grimm and all of those fairy tales about the wolves and things. Did that factor into this fear, or was there actual tangible uh, issues with these animals? Well, it you know, this question of why so many cultures have this mythology about wolves that's negative, certainly not all. Um, we go back to the Romans and we look at our, our own uh, original Americans' attitudes. But that may have had something to do with it. But clearly, wolves are great predators, and they were taking out... Uh, you know, sheep, cattle, and so forth and so on. And if you add the myth in terms of a, I guess we'd say a deep-seated fear about them, then it all it all came together. And the goal, of course, then was epic economic development of the West, right? And so things that got in the way of that were dealt with any number of ways. We, you know, we dammed rivers to develop water. We removed the r- wolves, and we relocated Native Americans all in the cause, I guess, of the settlement of the West. If we could go back then to an era before the white settlers, how widespread would wolves be across the West? You'd have to go back and look at diaries of settlers, Native American stories and myth, and where you could perhaps find biological evidence of of them, you know, through scat that might have been sort of quasi-petrified to find that all out. Um, and it would all, it would be you couldn't definitively conclude anything, but you'd have a lot of evidence, certainly. Are wolves seen as a threat for the same reasons today as they were in the 1800s? Well, what happened there, I think, is that um, obviously, and, and, and I suggest that the growth of the science of ecology and biology and so forth, we began to notice that wolves played a role in the functioning of North American ecosystems. Again, they kept prey populations more stable than without them. So we learned that, and certainly as we became more urban and removed ourselves from the fear of wolves, the myth, they became, you know, part of the iconic West that goes along with bald eagles and grizzly bear and sage-grouse. They become, became something that, that more people wanted again in that landscape, that they were there, um, quote, naturally, and it was us that decided they didn't belong there. The wolves didn't decide they didn't belong there. We did. But the wolves, uh, of course, are still seen as a threat to farmers and ranchers. Oh, and, and they do. They are. And they clearly do take out, you know, cattle and sheep and lambs and, and, and all of that business. And they are a threat. But the question becomes, 
like we do in many public policy areas, people live in earthquake zones, right? I mean, that's, that's a potential threat. Do we learn to live with risks or, and manage them or we decide to remove the risk? And that's what gets us into values and politics. The federal government says by the 1930s, uh, wolves were, were exterminated in the lower 48 states, except for Minnesota, yeah. which borders Canada. And in 1974, right. wolves were listed as an endangered species. Was mm-hmm. that controversial? You know, early in the Endangered Species Act, I, I don't think anybody foresaw where that act would end up. Um, uh, former uh, Senator Jim McClure here in Idaho, who used to talk to my class, he's, he's since passed away. You know, he he helped write the Endangered Species Act, and he pointed out that certainly the intent back then was the protection of what some biologists came to call the charismatic megafauna, the big critters, that, yeah, that's what we all, you know, the grizzly bear, the iconic American West species. And so there would have been less concern about that. It would have been more the, the reintroduction of them that created the controversy. Wolves were all... The, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence that wolves were returning on their own. They can travel a long way, and, you know, people would report sightings of them. They would hear something at night, but it was very tricky business to really ascertain what was going on. It was, you know, the apocryphal lone wolf, perhaps, we were talking about. But there was some evidence that they were beginning to return, put it that way. Well, there's a pack of gray wolves that established itself naturally in Montana in the mid-80s and 1980s. And they're protected by law because of this Endangered Species Act. But then in the 1990s, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service chose to bring back wolves into Idaho and in Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. So how contentious was this idea to introduce the wolves back in the early 90s? as opposed to the lone wolf type of thing. It was contentious. That's fair. I mean, environmental groups certainly supported it, obviously, in Yellowstone, um, which has been a, you know, a national park since 1872 and predates the states. Uh, that was going to happen. In the wilderness area of central Idaho, which is all Forest Service land, that was very contentious, though our own polling 20 years ago here at Boise State suggested that Idahoans supported the reintroduction of wolves by an astounding 70%. That's gone down today. We haven't polled on that question anymore. But today, Idahoans support hunting of wolves. But that's not a paradox. If the wolves have recovered to a certain population, then hunting is acceptable as a management tool. And so... um, it was contentious, but perhaps people were more supportive than you might realize. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Professor John Freemuth of Boise State University. John, wolf packs have been growing since those introductions, and there are at least 1,600 wolves in 282 packs in Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana right now. How has that changed the ecosystem? Well, what it's done, and, and certainly from Hunter's perspective, totally understandable, it's made uh, the populations of prey species like elk scarcer, if nothing else, because the elk know the wolves are there. And so they, they're not as easily found, let us put it that way. Their I populations see. have been affected, but they've also been affected by other predators such as mountain lions. And so, you know, you get hunting concern about wolves, certainly, um, 
But we need to remember, and this is something um, I learned from fish and wildlife myself, some of their endangered species biologists, we actually reintroduced elk in Idaho because we'd overhunted them. And so, you know, just thinking about the species we value, that, that becomes something that becomes really important to point out is we reintroduced wolves because we valued them, just like we reintroduced elks because we valued them we were, and we were overhunting them. So it, it comes down to human values at the end of the day. What is it we value, and then how do we manage what we value? And I want to note that wolves in Idaho and Montana are no longer considered endangered. And like you That's said, right. their hunts, um, is there concern that they could be wiped out again? The wolves, I think that's politically un- unacceptable. Um, they're here to stay. I mean, if you read about um, the tourism, especially in Yellowstone National Park, people who come from all over the world to see wolves in Yellowstone, and especially in certain areas, they're here to stay. I, I just don't think our politics would ever come to that point again of trying to remove them. Manage them, yes, because obviously they've, they've proved to be much more successful than even biologists predicted, and they do roam quite a bit. I mean, they've been seen in Oregon. Um, you know, here, they occasionally they're reported in our own foothills above Boise. And now, of course, you folks in Colorado are in a major debate about wolves there because you're kind of in the pincers between where we've got them and whatever's going to happen in the Southwest with the Mexican, the Mexican gray wolf. And that's the Mexican wolf program. There are about 100 of those yeah. wolves. And, and there's talk the program might be expanded, like you say, into Colorado in the coming years. Uh, last month, Colorado's wildlife commissioner said they oppose allowing both Mexican right. and gray wolves into the state. Yeah. And, and their concerns about money, of course, the welfare of livestock and sheep with these farmers and ranchers. Mm-hmm. Does the federal government take opposition like Colorado's seriously? Well, they, in my view, and certainly this is the way I look at public land policy decision, they need to listen carefully to those concerns. I mean, the feds can reintroduce wolves on federal land if they choose, but they need to be sensitive to, to the concerns of other, other folks because we've got, for another thing, we've got all these other issues like sage-grouse out there, and you need to have good working relationships. I, I was struck that, and this goes back to one of your early questions about were wolves in Colorado historically, biologically? Yeah. Um, and there are people asserting they weren't. I am no biologist, but I would be surprised if wolves were not in Colorado, given the spine of the Rocky Mountains that runs down the middle of our continent. Well, then what lessons could Colorado learn from other states who have wolves, you know, prevalent in in their states? Hopefully, there shouldn't be any rush to do it. It it seems to me that the the focus now is more on where we have them and the management of them. Wyoming's still got issues. And what happens in New Mexico and Arizona. And the process in Colorado should be very deliberative and collaborative and and thoughtful, um, given the politics of the situation right now. And could, at some point, without a reintroduction program in Colorado, could wolves converge in the state, like you say, from the north and the south? Well, given, again, the ability of wolves to travel and the need, as I, again, as I understand it from biologists, for the males to go seek out other, other uh, territory and given the swath of federal land through this part of our west, yeah, I would, I would assume they'll start showing up there, uh, the the apocryphal lone wolf again. They, 
they just you, you would think that's going to happen at some point. How fast it happens, I have no idea. John, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. John Freemuth is an environmental policy professor. He joined me from Boise State University in Idaho. You can read more about wolves in Colorado and the West at cprnews.org. Still ahead, a very special snow leopard in Colorado Springs is getting a lot of attention, and it's not just for his good looks. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. A snow leopard at the Cheyenne Mountain Zoo named Bhutan is getting a lot of attention lately. That's because his sperm count is off the charts. Most male snow leopards in captivity have low sperm counts, and scientists are trying to figure out how to boost those numbers. It's the subject of today's beta test, where we explore the world of science and research in Colorado. By studying Bhutan, researchers hope to help snow leopards reproduce. Jason Herrick is part of this research team. He's with the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. Also joining us is Eric Klopacki. He's an associate veterinarian at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. Klopacki told CPR's Andrew Dukakis that snow leopards are beautiful animals and a major attraction at zoos across the country. They're very mysterious. There's a lot of stuff we don't know about their life out into the wild. Um, They're built to handle very uh, extreme snowy conditions. Uh, Everything from probably their most fascinating feature is their long tail, which they have the longest uh, tail-to-body ratio of any animal that uh, uh, exists at this time. Uh, They have very short, stumpy ears to help manage for frostbite, and they have huge paws that allow them to walk on the top of uh, very deep snow. And where do they live? Where do most of them live? Most of them are found in central to, uh, I guess you could say, Southeast Asia, uh, usually up in high mountain terrain. Uh, During the summers, they will be ranging up at 10,000 to 20,000 feet elevation. During the winters, they may come down to four to 6,000 feet. Um, So they're spread out over an immense amount of uh, territory, but they're not densely populated as far as large numbers in one area. You may find only a few here and there in particular mountain ranges. Are are snow leopards endangered? We believe they are. Again, with such an elusive species, it's hard to get good head counts out in the wild. And some of the countries that they live in aren't always the safest places to be. Um, We're estimating anywhere from four to 6,000 cats may remain out there. Um, But again, I think uh, most people would agree that's a bit of a guess. Um, And those numbers, especially spread out over millions upon millions of uh, acres, is actually a very minuscule number where certain problems could pop up that could decimate that population very quickly. How big an attraction is Bhutan at the zoo? So he always seems to uh, draw a huge crowd when he's there. Um, people like his his uh, coloration. It's just very distinctive. Um, I think as much as people don't want to own fur coats, uh, I think everyone, when they first see it, one of the first things they always ask me is, what does that fur feel like? That's got to be so soft and so wonderful. And I'm like, yes, it is. <laughs> it is. It is amazing to touch on that when he's sleeping. They'll come up there and the kids, just the parents are trying to drag them away and they don't want to go because this cat's right up there looking at them and, and uh, interacting with them and really reading into what they're doing. He especially likes to interact with the children. When did you notice he was different? He's one of your residents who's particularly fertile. 
So that's the part that we were uh, caught off guard with. In uh, May 2012, we had uh, immobilized him for a regular physical exam where we take a look at his um, physical features. We take x-rays. We do blood work. We check his urine. And at that time, we had started working with uh, Jason. Uh, he wanted to evaluate some of these animals, and we were curious to see where he was at. And so Jason came in to evaluate Bhutan. Um, and uh, I remember when he was in the other room looking at the samples that he was collecting, there were a lot of uh, superlatives that were coming out of his mouth as to how excited he was. And um, then he had the opportunity to tell us more about what he was finding. And Jason, you're from the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. Um, and you've been doing research for quite a while, but just started this study. How will Bhutan be part of the research? Well, I started the work in 2009 and started looking at a few different male snow leopards, just evaluating their individual fertility and found that a large percentage of them had really low sperm numbers, which was kind of surprising. Um, snow leopards historically have bred really well in zoos, but I was finding these guys that were um, having these low sperm numbers. And then when I got to Bhutan at Cheyenne Mountain, he had for lack of a better word, a ton of sperm. Mm -hmm. um, he's my current record holder. Okay. And um, so in this study, he serves uh, what we call as a positive control. So we're looking at a, a number of different factors that may be affecting reproduction in snow leopards, nutrition and stress. Um, now we know that everything they're doing at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo works. You know, everything he's being fed, everything they're doing is conducive to a very fertile male. So that helps us when we go to other zoos and look at other males. To try to compare how they're being treated and whether that has an effect. Right. And is there any evidence that the sperm count of snow leopards in captivity is declining? I mean, do you did you study it 10 years ago or are you just noticing that compared to other animals, the sperm count is low? The breeding success in the captive breeding program has been going down. Um, they recommend about 40 different pairs breed every year. And in the last few years, only about 30% of those recommendations have actually resulted in cubs. So that that is a concern. But my sample size is also a little bit skewed in that I've, I've been called to some of these zoos to look at some of these males because they weren't breeding. So I don't know if it's really representative of of the whole population. So part of the current study is to go to more zoos and look at more males. And, you know, we're talking about zoos. So, you know, the idea that zoos may have fewer snow leopards living there, but there's also this question of how snow leopards are reproducing in the wild. And do you have a sense of that now and, and whether those sperm counts are low as well? No, we don't have any ideas. Um, as Eric said, they're really elusive cats. They live in really rugged habitats. They're hard to study in the wild. So we don't we don't have any idea about what's going on out there. Now, Eric, some people don't like the idea of animals being in captivity. And there's this question about whether the fact that snow leopards are in captivity is affecting their fertility. Is there any possibility that that's the case? And that's always a good question. I think we always have to look internally to see if there is any validity to that. We like to think at our zoo that um, we try to provide the best type of enclosures for the animal to be uh, having the space that they need, the proper diet. One of the bigger problems we actually have, I think, sometimes in captivity is overfeeding animals now. And um, again, I think our institution does a really good job of, uh, we actually probably have more guest complaints about um, the animals looking a little on the thin side and we have to correct them just like with domestic dogs and mm -hmm. cats that you're kind of looking at a 
new normal out there where this is actually what a snow leopard is supposed to look like with that. And we do a very active program of enriching the animal's life. Um, that's part of my job as one of the veterinarians is I have to approve all sorts of different things that are being offered to the animal to keep them excited and engaged on things. And And we're hoping that uh, over time, Jason's research may help to show that some of the stuff we're doing on that part is part of what's engaging him. And we view him also as uh, as an ambassador for his species, especially as a very charismatic species. We view it as very important that he connects with those guests so that they view these animals very positively. Um, we also like to use him as a good example of a, a sister species, if you will, the Amur leopards, which are very, very critically endangered, both in the zoo community and in the wild. And we're hoping some of the information that Jason finds on snow leopards will be able to be applied to some of our other critically endangered cat species. And that someday, maybe we'll be able to apply this out into the wild setting to help their uh, wild brethren out there. So do you see these fertility issues in other cats and other animals in the zoo? I mean, why focus on snow leopards in particular? We do see it in some other species. There are, there's multiple cat species that don't breed very well in zoos. Um, we don't always know why that is. Uh, clotted leopards and cheetahs are sort of known for having low sperm counts and low sperm quality, Very a lot of abnormal sperm. I started focusing on snow leopards um, just because of their, you know, the recent history that this, you know, in the last few years, their breeding success has gone down and nobody else was looking at it. But, and again, you don't know how it compares to their reproductive success in the wild. No, we, we don't really know. There are several species, though, cheetahs and palace cats, black-footed cats, lions, where we do have data both on captive animals and wild animals. And usually the sperm characteristics are pretty similar. I was just going to mention that, um, you know, again, looking at the the timing of everything out in the wild, these guys usually have a period where the females are receptive to breeding of about a five to eight day window. Um, and so when you're talking about, again, maybe a handful of cats over an entire mountain range, trying to find each other, succeeding in that time and uh, everything coming together, I think, again, in the wild, especially as more and more habitat fragmentation occurs, um, it's going to become more and more a challenge for the, the wild individuals as well. And uh, Jason, you usually work uh, at the Center for Reproductive Medicine on human fertility. Um, you're working on snow leopard fertility right now. <laughs> but could this have any implications for humans? Yeah, potentially. So that uh, the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine is kind of unusual that we have a really big research program. And that research is really about understanding the, the basic biology of reproduction. And the main goal of the research is to improve the treatment uh, for patients and help them have families. But once you understand that basic biology, it really has a lot of applications, whether that's human fertility or agricultural species reproduction or, or snow leopard conservation. Jason, Eric, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Jason Herrick is with the Colorado Center for Reproductive Medicine. Eric Klopaki is an associate veterinarian at Cheyenne Mountain Zoo. The research is funded through a grant from the Association of Zoo and Aquariums. Coming up, a unique approach to teaching 7th graders about dementia. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. An estimated 65,000 Coloradans have dementia or Alzheimer's. For a child, understanding what's happening to the grandma or grandpa they've known and loved can be overwhelming. But at a private school in Denver, 7th graders are learning about the devastating disease in a year-long multidisciplinary course. And as CPR education reporter Jenny Brundin explains, the program uses both an academic and a hands-on approach. 
Seventh grader Greg Kinsel remembers hiking and playing lots of games with his grandmother. Like Scrabble. She'd come up with all these words. I'd be like, is that a word? And then she'd be like, oh, yes, it is. You can check in the dictionary. And she was usually right. Then his grandmother started changing. Whenever he visited her, she'd say, Oh, what's your name? Oh, it's Greg. And how tall are you? And she asked that multiple times when I come over, and I always wondered why. Her mood was changing, too. I felt kind of hurt, because I've known her since I was a baby. It wasn't until he saw his first video on Alzheimer's at the beginning of the school year and began learning about the disease intensively in science class he thought, Oh, this explains a lot. Greg's understanding of what has happened to his grandmother has increased exponentially. His school, Grayland Country Day School, has developed a comprehensive learning module for seventh graders focused on Alzheimer's disease. The biggest part is learning how the brain works. Mark Gatlin is the seventh grade science teacher. In his class, the students learn about the history of the disease, the genetic mutations, and the biochemical changes in the brain. Different medicines how mice are used within the laboratory, how research is going. In English class, they write biographical sketches of an elderly person in their lives, and in art, build memory boxes filled with objects representing that same person's life. But the program is not just academics. I'm riding up the elevator at Sunrise Senior Living Center with a bunch of 7th graders and science teacher Mark Gatlin. He says at the beginning of the year... We only have a handful of kids who would like to go up onto the what we call the third floor, the reminiscence floor. That's where the patients with some form of dementia live. And they're really reticent. They're not sure about what the whole situation is going to be like or what dementia is like. He tells me by the end of the project, kids like Natalie Rumsfeld are clamoring to go up even though it's not always easy to interact. Did you go anywhere other than Oklahoma? Um, Kansas City. You went to Kansas City? Mm-hmm. What did you do in Kansas City? Um, we did snow skiing. You went snow skiing? Mm-hmm. Did you like that? Our goal here is intergenerational learning. Teacher Mark Gatlin says not only are they coaxing memories out of seniors, kids are learning complex social skills. The hardest thing is teaching patience (laughs) with the 7th graders. So 12 and 13-year-olds, they want immediate feedback, and going to sunrise takes them out of their comfort zone. This is the joy for me for today. These same skills, being authentic, patient, and gentle with seniors, are put to work a couple of days later at the school on a croquet green. Just watch your step. About once a month, some of the seniors come over to the school to play croquet. 86-year-old Bill Taylor is playing well, but hasn't cracked a smile yet. Then he hits the most incredible shot. Yes! He smiles the biggest smile at his student mentor, Greg Kinsel. That was amazing! And for Greg, this experience has helped him with his own grandmother. He still plays Scrabble with her. Now her words are made up, but that's okay. He tells me on the reminiscence floor that he's learned not to get so frustrated with her questions and moods. And talking with a wide variety of people with dementia at sunrise, he knows what to expect. It's kind of like a map for me, like what's going to happen to my grandmother. Like you have Jerry, who I was talking with, who's kind of more in the beginning stage, like how my grandmother kept asking me questions. But just a couple weeks ago, I had someone who's very deep and only made noises and it was very hard to communicate. 
So it's very interesting being up here and learning like what's going to be the map of how she's going to progress. There are high school courses like this in the UK and in Europe, but here in the US, Grayland's Alzheimer's project appears to be unique, brainstormed and developed in-house. But the school says it's happy to share the model with anyone interested in creating a similar program. I'm Jenny Brendeen, Colorado Public Radio News. All right, so we're going to get up and then we're going to walk downstairs, okay? Okay. Did you have fun today? Oh, I did. One of the newest additions to the collection at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science dates back to when an ocean covered eastern Colorado. It's the skull of a fish with an odd-shaped mouth and a name that's pretty hard to spell. Rinconichthys was about eight feet long with a huge jaw and no teeth. It strained its food from the water like some whales. And it would seem there weren't many of them. There's rare, and then there's exceptionally rare. Paleontologist Bruce Schumacher and a colleague discovered the fossil on the Comanche National Grassland in southeast Colorado. He told CPR's Mike Lamp about his unusual find. This fish was not known in the Western Hemisphere anywhere. So this is the only specimen in the Western Hemisphere in the New World. And if you go to the Old World, the only two specimens that were previously known um, are from the United Kingdom and Japan. So this is one of three representatives of an entire family of organisms known anywhere in the world. And what does it tell you about the nature of this fish that only three specimens exist, as far as you know, and that they were found so far apart? Yeah, that's a little bit of a curiosity yet, but I think part of the answer is that there may be unrecognized specimens of it in collections in museums in the form of a fin, but it's hard to ascribe that fin to an animal whose skull we don't know about or whose body we don't know about. The second thing ecologically is these may have just been a very rare component of that ecosystem. Maybe there weren't a lot of these fish in the ocean, or maybe they inhabited areas of the ocean that we just haven't explored very well. This fish is uh, something like 92 million years old. What was Colorado's environment like at that time? So what we think of as the Great Plains is still a remnant of an ancient ocean. The interior of North America was flooded from the Gulf of Mexico up to Hudson Bay. And these layers that this fish was found in are sort of right at the highest water levels in that ancient ocean. Is this fossil something that just anyone could look at and know what it was? Maybe not, you know, the exact species of fish, but know that you're looking at a very old fish fossil? It would be a little difficult, to be honest with you. Um, The skull is crushed, you know, because it was buried thousands of feet by overlying rocks, rocks that have since been eroded away. So it's very compressed, flat, very crushed. And it's not crushed in a neat way. It's sort of smushed is the term I would use, perhaps. So to a scientist, it's a marvel. It's a beauty to look at. But to a casual observer, it's sort of like you scratch your head and it's like, what is that? How long have you been working as a paleontologist? Uh, 20 years, more or less. Have you found anything this unusual up to now? Um, yes and, and no. I've, I've found um, things that I personally am more excited about. I really specialize in reptiles. I've done some work with dinosaurs, and we found some rather fantastic things. But no, I've never even come close to finding an example of a fossil that is the only one known in the Western Hemisphere. No, I've never come close to that. I don't think I ever will again. This is probably the most important fossil I'll find in my life. I hope not, but um, 
it would seem like it's going to be hard to surpass it. Bruce Schumacher is a paleontologist with the U.S. Forest Service. He spoke with CPR's Mike Lamp. And you can see pictures of the smushed skull fossil and what the whole fish might have looked like at CPRnews.org. And that's our show for this Tuesday. Thanks to audio engineers Michael Hughes and Matt Hers, our director Stephanie Wolf, our producers Nancy Laughlin, Michael DeYuana, and Andrea Dukakis. Colorado Matters is also a podcast. You can subscribe by clicking Colorado Matters at the top of cprnews.org, then click subscribe to podcast in the audio player. And you can also find us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook, CPR News. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.